Good morning to you all, you saints of Affirmation Presbyterian Church. Very excited to be back here this morning. The last time I was here a few weeks ago, I was not not planning on being back so quickly. Um, but as things worked out, my father went on vacation. Um, my oldest sister just had her second child down in Atlanta. So he chose to take his vacation a little bit early so he could be with the new grandbaby. That's grandbaby number 11 for him. Uh, so he's, so, so we're, we're prolific. I'll share it. Uh, I've contributed four of those. Um, but he's away. And so that Westminster, my home church, does not have to hear my voice sermon after sermon while he is gone. And throughout the ash uh, or the, the Lenten season on all the Wednesday services, we had a pastor swap and Pastor Spanger is down there preaching to my home church, and I'm back here with you all. And that's lovely for me because the last time I was here, I had something that had been kind of brewing on my heart for quite some time, and I spoke to a few of you maybe in Sunday school, I believe, about how whenever I came back, if, if the Lord was going to have me back here, I was going to preach from Hebrews chapter 12. I had not ever done that, and I thought that the passage was very significant and important. And so in the Lord's providence, he brought me back here quite quickly to be able to do that today. And it's a great privilege this morning to be with you all and to stand where we stand this morning, to sit where we sit, and for all of us to sing where we sing. This is a beautiful and lovely situation that we have right now. I'm not particularly talking about this quaint little church that we have here in Westchester County, although that is lovely and special, especially in light of world events. But I'm talking about the fact that this morning, you and I, we have come to Mount Zion, and we have come to the living God. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. In a unique, a special, and appointed way in corporate worship of the triune God, we have come this morning to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And we have come to the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven. The firstborn, the author tells us of Hebrews, who are enrolled in heaven. And we, beloved, this morning, we have come to God, the judge of all. And we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Who amongst us is worthy of such things? Who amongst us is worthy of that? Our text this morning is Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. And we will approach what I truly believe and I hope will be a deeply reorienting and restructuring text for your life together as Affirmation Presbyterian Church. And we're going to approach that text, which I think is the most structuring text for the church's life together once you get this vision. We're going to approach that text under three headings this morning. Number one, what we have come to. Number two, why we don't see it. And lastly, what we need in order to see it. So what we have come to, why we don't see it, what we need in order to see it. So first, we'll ever so briefly sketch out what it is exactly that you and I have come to. And my prayer, once again, is that not a single one of you will walk into this building with the same eyes as you walked into today, walked in with today, that you will come to this place a little bit different from this point forward. So the author of Hebrews Right before he gets to our text today, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, he had been talking about the status of the people under the law alone. 
what we might call lex sola, the people under the law alone. And then he moves to our remarkable text. And in that text, Scripture is going to attempt to perform sort of corrective eye surgery on each and every one of us. It's going to try to perform corrective eye surgery on us who have been called to a new status under the covenant of grace. And I want to be very clear at the outset of this sermon. This is a state that you and I have. Capital H, capital A, capital V, capital E. This is a state that we have currently, present tense, right now, at this very moment, come to. Notice that our author, he does not say, you know, I know things are difficult. Things are tough down below. Heard a lot of prayer requests, a lot of suffering. We've all suffered a lot of death in the last couple of years. He doesn't say, I know things are difficult, but have faith. You will come to these things one day. This is out there on the horizon for you. He categorically does not say that. He says, but you have come to these things. He says, we have come to the heavenly city, to Mount Zion. He says, we have not come to Mount Sinai as the saints of old did, right? The saints that were led by Moses. Our reality, he says, is that of a people who have come to a place or a mountain that cannot be touched with our human, physical, corporal hands. But he says that we have come to a place this morning populated with countless angels. Think about that. Angels, beings who are often seen as messengers of judgment because of our sin, because of our corruption. Those angels who almost always have to preface their whatever message they have, they almost always have to preface it with, fear not, because of the danger and the terror that is engendered in fearful man when they approach anything that is remotely holy. Those angels, the author of Hebrews tells us, occupies the same space that you and I are in right now. Those angels, they help fill the audible void of all of us Christians who find it not necessary for us to sing our opening hymns. No, you guys do a pretty good job here singing. There's lots of churches I go to where it it tends to be a problem amongst men more than women, at least in my estimation. Um, But there are these people that sit there that have been summoned into this place and will just start mumbling through these things. Well, don't worry. The angels are picking up the slack for us and they're singing there. I often have to chastise the young boys that I teach. I say, hey, men sing, boys mumble, but men sing. This morning, you and I, we have stepped into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And all of those of us who are united to Christ, having been justified by free grace and adopted as sons of God, we have all of the rights that belong to the firstborn son. I'm sure all of you know historically, right? The firstborn son, he's the one that receives the inheritance rights. And those of us who are allied, integrated, and assembled and incorporated by the blood of Jesus into sonship, we receive all the inheritance rights. Namely, access to God himself. That's what the inheritance rights are about. Jesus has access to God. We get access to God. We have inheritance rights. It's to that assembly that you have come this morning. Beloved, can you even begin to grasp the fact that this morning, the author of Hebrews tells you that you have come 
to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Today, you and I, we worship with Evars. And not in just some metaphorical way as if he were still right there, but in a real, actual way, we worship with his spirit that has been made righteous, now perfect, while he awaits for the resurrection of his body. Not just like in, in some weird way when we talk about death and like, oh, he's passed to the other room. and We have his memory lingering, lingering with us and we can kind of picture him still. No, we, the author of Hebrews says, we worship with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We at this very moment, we worship with Coach Spanger. Right? We just sang with Moses and Elijah. When we were called into worship today, and, and, and remember, at the beginning of worship, you don't just stumble in here. You are called into worship. That's why your worship starts with a call to worship. God summons you into this place. And when he calls you into worship, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they answer the call. They're right there with you. The great singer of the Holy Spirit, King David, in your closing hymn today, in our final songs, he will be singing with you. He will be hymning the ancient of days the one who is pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. He'll be singing. And best believe, he'll be singing loudly. This morning, in an acute, heightened, and profound way, when you come into corporate worship, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. When you enter this place, you feast, you dine at his table, and then he freely offers you his cup. Right? He already drank your cup. Right? Your cup of condemnation, your cup of judgment, your cup of shame, your cup of guilt. He drank that cup to the dregs. And then when you come into his house, he freely offers you his cup, which he says is the new covenant in my blood. Notice, you, we got to take Jesus's word serious. He says the cup is the new covenant in his blood. He never says, hey, you know this cup that I give you, communion, this thing? It's a cute reminder of, of, of my blood. It's a way that you can remember me. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then he beckons all the nations from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth to come here to drink of his cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. No, you guys have not come to church this morning. Christians don't go to church. That is what you have come to. That scenario we just laid out is what you walk into each Sunday morning. So that being said... Let's look at our second point. Why exactly is it, if that is what we have come to, that we do not see it? Because I imagine if you're anything like me, that's not what you're seeing right now. You don't see Evar's spirit. You don't see angels. You don't see Moses and Elijah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob answering the call. You did not hear King David's voice. Why don't we hear it? Well, Scripture gives us a pretty clear, consistent and one might even say repetitive answer to that question. Why do we not see these realities? The answer is because we are blind. Blind. Absolutely destitute of vision. The Old Testament is flooded with prophetic warnings to the house of Israel in regards to their being undeserving of vision because of their sin. That they are destitute, lacking in vision. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, Isaiah 6.10, we get a judgment text right in the middle of that grand vision. Remember that vision that starts off Isaiah's ministry where the angel comes down and he touches, touches the burning coal to his lips? Right in the middle of that grand vision, we get a judgment text. These are the words of Isaiah 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. All the major prophets hit on that same note. Jeremiah 5.21 Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. You heard it in our Old Testament lesson, Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. I could go on just listing the references of the Old Testament, talking about the lack of vision that Israel has. But I'm going to try to keep this just short of a Tolstoy novel as far as the length of this sermon. But I got a lot to go, so it's going to be just short. I just, I just finished this week. I, I set out on, on, a, on a journey. I had a professor in my PhD program back in the day in philosophy who had always told me that Anna Karenina, it was the greatest novel um, in the history of the world. That was his opinion. He loved it. And it was always stuck in the background. And so I, I plotted out and I just got through it. Um, and it's long. Uh, it won't be that long. Uh, but it could be that long if we just listed all of the references to the blindness of the people of God. Now, it's not just the Old Testament that harps on the blindness of God's people. It's not just Israel. It, we see it just as much in the New Testament. Right? We heard it in, 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 the, in the exhortation at the beginning of this worship service. Those who are walking and talking with Jesus, those sort of in the immediate gravitational force of the word made flesh, they were every bit as blind as those rebellious, recalcitrant Israelites who were demolished by the Assyrians. Right? Peter, James, and John, they were every bit as veiled in their sight as those from Judah who were dragged with fish hooks in their mouth across the desert into Babylonian captivity. I mean, why do you think, as we were mentioning before, that there are so many accounts of Jesus healing the blind in the New Testament? We get it in Mark 8, John 9, Mark 10, Matthew 9. Thousands of things Jesus never does, and yet he heals the blind over and over again. And that theme, that theme of blindness, it doesn't just stop in the Gospels. It continues throughout the entire New Testament canon. I mean, the book of Acts, right? that glorious book full of the acts of the spirit of the ascended Christ, the book full of miracles and conversions and the gospel spreading out. You know how it ends? It ends with these words, Acts 28, 27. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes. Not to be outdone, Paul has to chime in too. Paul, Romans eleven eight. he says, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. That's us. That's our condition. We are a visionless people. We do not see things. If we listen to scripture, we do not see things the way that they actually are. And that's why we do not see the grandeur, the immense beauty of this moment that we have stepped into. That's why we walk into this place the way that we walk into it. We don't see the beauty of what we have walked into. Because if we did see it fully, our hearts might burst. We might not be able to take it. In her preeminent novel, Middlemarch, George Eliot, she writes these lovely words. If you've never read Middlemarch, I'd encourage you to read Middlemarch. It's not breaking news there. I encourage you to read one of the greatest novels ever. Um, but anyways, 
George Eliot writes these words. If we had keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat. And we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. We should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. We are so unaware of the actual realities that we're stepping through right now that it often takes these sort of special moments, special artists, special writers to grab our attention and kind of make a foray into the future, into reality, and shove it before our faces. Say, no, you're not seeing things properly. I'm sure all of us have had those sort of experiences before, right? When you're standing before a brilliant piece of art, an incredible book, a certain song, that experience of just sort of being knocked back, bowled over, that experience that leaves you saying, wow, I can't believe I never saw that thing that way before. I'll never be able to look at the world the same way again. Everything has changed now after that moment. I'm sure we've had experiences like that before. They're radical experiences. They're, 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 they're meta-narrative shifting experiences. There's a, uh, a modern artist, interesting, very interesting fellow, um, by the name of Makoto Fujimura. Some of you may be familiar with him, Makoto Fujimura. And Fujimura has produced all kinds of very, very interesting art. And he's in the middle right now of working on a project on the Psalms, where in this painstaking style of art, a Japanese style of art known as Nihanga, Nihanga, he is making 150 individual paintings. One that sort of captures the essence, in his opinion, of each of the 150 psalms. Fujimura says this about what good artists are doing. These are his words. Artists are like the spies who Moses sent into Canaan and who were brought back and who brought back fresh fruit from the promised land to the people still in the desert. That is to say, they make dangerous forays into God's future and return to show an often disbelieving world and sadly, an often suspicious church what the future is like. Notice that analogy there. It's a gorgeous analogy. He says, artists are like the spies outside of Canaan, right? Think about the, the situation of Canaan, right? Canaan is a typological land, right? That means Canaan typifies, it looks forward to our eternal land, right? Heaven, heavenly rest with the Father. So it's a type of a future of heaven. And the spies are outside the land. Israel has just been redeemed 430 years in bondage. They're coming. They're approaching their, their, their eternal destiny, their rest, their heavenly home. But they're not quite there yet. So the spies, they break into the promised land. They go into the promised land. They go into the future, right, to, to the heavenly rest. And they take the fruit. They procure the fruit from the future. And they bring it back to those outside the camp. And they say, taste of the heavenly food in advance. This is what you have come to. You have come to it right now. You're not fully there, but you have come to it. Taste of heaven right now. That's what we are doing in corporate worship of the triune God. We are making a foray into the future and being transformed by the future, which has already crashed into the present. Here in the heavenly Jerusalem, here with the angels, here with the assembly of the firstborn, here with the spirits of the righteous made perfect, here with King Jesus. By being in the presence of God and having the radiating light that 
emanates from his presence. By having all of those things, by having that light sort of perform eschatological LASIK eye surgery on us, that's how we come to see better. That's how we come to have our vision restored. The great Italian poet Dante, as you know, I've referenced him here before. I love teaching through the Divine Comedy, especially the third section. Many, many students get stuck. They just read the Inferno. And for me, the height is, is the height when you finally make it through the Inferno, past Purgatorio, and into Paradiso. Paradiso is my favorite part of the Divine Comedy. But Dante, having crawled out of the depths of hell and climbed the mountain of purgation, he can finally see. He makes it to paradise, Paradiso. And having his vision restored, this is the words of the Italian poet. He says, in the profound and shining being of the deep light, three circles appeared of three colors and one magnitude. He's trying to describe the Trinity as best you can in human forms. One seemed refracted by the other, like irises rainbows, and the third seemed fire-breathed equally from both. Oh, how the words fall short, and how feeble compared with my conceiving. And they are such compared to what I saw that it is inadequate to call them merely feeble. He continues, O eternal light, who only rest in yourself and know only yourself, who understood by yourself and knowing yourself, love and smile. Those circles that seem to be conceived in you as reflected light, when traversed by my eyes, a little, seem to be adorned inside themselves with our image in its proper colors. And to that, my sight was fully committed. Dante is beholding the face of God in and through the person of Christ. Listen to those last words again. He says those circles, so he sees these kind of three circles entwined that seem to be conceived in you as reflected light when they're traversed by my eyes, a little. They seem to be adorned inside with our image, but in its proper colors. And to that, my sight was wholly committed. He's staring at Jesus. And his eyes said, I can't fixate on anything else. That's all I can look at. He can't look at Beatrice anymore. He doesn't care about Beatrice anymore. He's staring at God. Beloved, we don't see the world aright because we're not aware of our own current situation. Our affections and our eyes are not fixated on reality as it is, but rather as reality as we happen to see it with our carnal eyes, the eyes of the flesh. And our lives... Our lives will always follow our eyes. Our feet are only going to follow wherever our feet go. And if we have an improper assessment of our situation, an improper assessment of our reality, our feet are going to lead us and our eyes are going to lead us in all sorts of incorrect paths, improper paths. You have to see where you are in order to know where you are going. And we don't see where we are properly. We don't have a proper assessment of what the church is and hence we don't have a proper assessment of who we are. Not who we will be, but who we are right now. I had a student of mine recently who sent me this story. I think it's been floating around the internet. As, as far as my research goes, the story seems to check out and be true. So maybe you've bumped into it. But he told me a story about this multimillionaire guy who made a bunch of money in the world of magazines, a ton of money in the world of magazines. This man, who went on to a very successful career, obviously, as a high schooler, he was an absolutely awful student. He was lazy, as poor students tend to be. Not always, but tend to be. And he was bordering on failing out of school. Just, he was, he was just an abomination of a student. 
His mom forces him to take the SATs. He says, mom, why am I going to take the SATs? What's the purpose here? Like, you know, I'm going to do poorly. I'm, I'm like, I'm not cut out for this academic thing. Let me do something else. She forces him to take the SATs. He scores a 1,500 out of 1,600. His mom questions him. He says, you cheated. He goes, mom, I didn't cheat. I'm not even smart enough to cheat. I wouldn't know how to cheat properly on the... She goes, you cheated. He goes, mom, I didn't cheat on the test. The boy swore up and down. And now... Having received a 1,500 out of 1,600, he started to act a little bit different. He says, well, kids that get 1,500s, they go to class. They show up on time. They ask their professors extra questions. They read books. He started thriving instantly, getting A's in all of his classes. And then he goes on to become this successful businessman. Well, years down the road, he comes to find out that through a technical glitch, he, along with a handful of other students, they received the wrong SAT score. He scored a 700 on his tests. I think you get 700 points for writing your name. That is a historically low score. It is hard. Like, you guys could try to do as bad as you could in the SAT. I do not think you could intentionally get a 700. Very, very hard to get a 700. He bombed the test. You see, the way that one views themselves changes the way that they act. Even the way that you perform. Right? He saw himself as an A student, and so he was. He became one. Right? We need to let this passage, let Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, let Scripture reset our understanding of who we are and what we are doing here, what is going on here. Letting the words of Scripture, letting the words of Hebrews particularly, sort of dice up our milk toast, bland, lifeless ecclesiology. Letting these words sort of wreak havoc on our bland understanding of what church is right now will help us to start to regain what I often call a sacramental imagination, a sacramental vision of reality. These words of Hebrews, they change the way we view everything. I mean, absolutely everything, if you let them do that. In her absolutely majestic novel, Gilead, I don't know if any of you have read Gilead, Marilyn Robinson one of my favorite books, I'm leading a book study of a bunch of young students through it right now. It's probably my, my fourth time reading the novel. Um, in her majestic novel, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson, she gets this sacramental vision and she gets it in a big way. The story, it's a remarkable story. It's about a 76-year-old minister from Gilead, Iowa. Now, Gilead, Iowa is a fake, it's a fictional town, but this is a very, very real story. He's 76 years old and he's dying. He's dying of a heart problem. Now he also has a spiritual heart problem as well, but he's dying of a heart problem. And in this last year of his life, he is writing a letter to his seven-year-old son, a sort of stream of conscience, everything I want to pass down to my son because I'm not going to be here. I will be dead. I'm gone. And you can see that through the gift of his son, he has started to receive, the pastor, a new sacramental vision. He has had his eyes restored and he starts to view everything through the lens of grace. And he realizes, once he has this restored vision, that he had seen everything in his life wrong from start to finish. At one point in the novel, in this letter to his son, he writes these words. Ludwig Feuerbach says a wonderful thing about baptism. I have it marked. He says, water is the purest, clearest of liquids. In virtue of this, its natural character, it is the image of the spotless divine spirit. In short, Water has a significance in itself as water. It is on the account of its natural quality 
that it is consecrated and sealed as the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. So far, there lies at the foundation of baptism a beautiful, profound, natural significance. He stops. So he's writing this letter, right, looking out the window, writing this to his son. He's talking about what Feuerbach has to say about baptism and that baptism, you know, that water is the clearest of liquids. That's why it's been consecrated and is sealed as a vehicle of the Holy Spirit. And he stops because he looks out his window. And there had just been a big storm that passed through. And now the sun is starting to shine. And, and, and the sunshine hitting the water on the ground is starting to form all these little prisms and there's rainbows all over the place. And there's this young couple in love. You can tell that they're walking outside. And the young boy, teenage couple, he, he jumps up and he grabs a branch of a tree. And the, all the water that had been held in the tree starts to rain down on the young girl below. And she spins around in her sundress. And he describes this scene to his son. He gets back to the letter and he says, It was beautiful. A beautiful thing to see. Like something from a myth. I don't know why I thought of that now. Except perhaps because it is easy to believe in such moments. That water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables or doing the wash. Water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables or doing the wash. You see, Marilyn Robinson, the author of that text, she made a foray into God's future, which is present now and was able to see with these renewed eyes that water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily is water used for doing vegetables or doing the wash or washing your car, all the things that we think it is primarily there for. People who realize, people who have swam in the deep waters of the text of Hebrews and have come to truly understand that they now sit among the angels, they can no longer even view water the same way. Because you start to realize, I have viewed that thing wrong all my life. You realize, I lack sacramental vision. I lack a sacramental imagination of things. Remember, C.S. Lewis at one point talks in one of his works about the fact that trees, that trees grow upwards. And the ancients used to talk about that, like, well, of course trees grow upward because they are pointing towards God. But we don't, we don't view that that way. We think, well, that just, that's a freak of nature that trees happen to grow up that way. We don't have sacramental vision that say the trees are longing to get to God. They're pointers to Him. It takes a sacramental vision to th- see things that way. So, having looked at what we have come to and why it is that we don't see it, I want to examine our final point. What do we need in order to see that? What do we need in order to see this? Well, I'm going to cut right to the chase on this one. What do we need in order to see it? We need faith. Gerhardus Voss, the great Dutch theologian, he says in Hebrews, faith is the proving of things not seen. You're all familiar with that passage. In Hebrews, faith is the proving of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the organ for apprehension of unseen and future realities, giving access to and contact with another world. Faith is the hand, he writes, stretched out through the vast distances of space and time, whereby the Christian draws to himself the things far beyond it so that they become actual to him. Think about that. Faith is the organ by which we apprehend unseen current realities. Faith is the hand stretched out through the vast distances of space and time whereby the Christian brings to himself the things that are real, so that they might become actual to him now. 
It's only by coming to grips with the realities to which we have already come to, through the mouth and the eyes, the organs of faith, that we can, in the here and now, start to live as kings and queens in these modest tents that we're walking around in. We can only live properly as those who have all the inheritance rights, all the inheritance rights do the firstborn, when we, by faith, understand the inheritance that we already possess, that we already come to. All right, we saw that the Old Testament prophets, that they chastised the Israelites for not seeing properly. Right, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. But we, brothers and sisters, you and I, unlike the patriarchs of old, are in the words of Voss, we are pilgrims with heaven's doors open in our sight. We are pilgrims with heaven's doors wide open in our sight. What does he mean by that? He's saying something along the lines that we have a better vision than Jacob had in Genesis 28. Remember the vision when he sees the ladder with angels ascending and descending? We have a better vision than that because we have seen the Son of Man and we have seen angels ascending and descending on him. And through him, we see heaven's doors flung wide open right now. But we need faith to see this. And much to our discredit, much to our shame, many, if not all, of the Old Testament patriarchs had far greater faith than we have with far less privilege. Far greater faith, far less privilege. Right? David, prompted by faith and moved by love, he became a prophet of things he could never see. We need to fight. And we need to fight our nature. Fight against our desire to see things the way that they happen to appear to us so that we might regain a vision of the heavenly reality that we have come to. And this place that we have come to, when we come here to corporate worship of the triune God on Sunday mornings, this is a place of rest, right? This is Easter, right? This is celebration. I've been preaching through a series on Lent right now, and we, we, we celebrate Lent in the church calendar for these 40 days, right? But we always celebrate Lent if we have the sacramental vision to realize it, right? Monday through Saturday are always Lenten days, right? They're days of absence. They're days of negation. They're days of, of want. And then Sunday is always Easter Sunday. It's coming to the feast. It's coming to Jesus, right? We were made for Sundays. We're not made for Monday through Saturday. Monday, for, Monday through Saturday exists for Sunday, and when you come to this place each week, you come to a place of rest, but you come to a place of active rest. It's rest, but it is active rest. Anthony Esselin, the great Dante scholar, he says of paradise, of heaven, these words. He says, heaven is a place of peace, but it is a peace magnificently expressed, not by rest exactly, but by the glee of motion, of ringing of bells of country dances, of high-hearted pilgrims, of lovers in love. Faith lets us see that we, what we see with our carnal eyes in this moment, we are but a small motif. That's what we are. We're a small motif in a story written by somebody else. And that story, if we let Hebrews do the eye surgery on us, is a story far greater than the story that you're seeing right now. Right? That vision that we have come to is far greater than whatever story you're telling yourself about what is going on right now. A good friend of mine, Brad McDuffie, is a professor of literature over at Marist College. He sent me this amazing lecture 
by a professor from the University of Toronto by the name of Nick Mount, um, a, a lecture on T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And he knows that I love The Wasteland. I teach The Wasteland. Um, I think it's one of the great pieces of, of, of Western literature. Uh, you need a guide through The Wasteland, though The Wasteland is difficult and it's tough. And this professor in the lecture, he talks about the fact that in Eliot's great poem, Eliot is sort of giving us the song of humanity, the song of Western and Eastern literature that has been broken up by war and then reassembled in a new frame. That's what the wasteland is, right? The tradition, Eliot writes the wasteland in 1922, right on the back of World War I. World War I ends in 1918. And Eliot's writing during that time, right after the war. And he's, and he's looking at the world and the world seems to be shattered by World War I, the Great War, right? The war that would end all wars. And Eliot says, it seems like the war, imagine a picture or a, or a stained glass window that has a bullet that goes through it. It shatters. That's the story of humanity. That's what it looks like World War I had done to it. World War I had shattered all the song of humanity. And now all we have are these fragmented pieces. And so what Eliot tries to do in the wasteland is he wants to scoop all the pieces together and reassemble them in a new frame. That is what the wasteland is. It's the frame that reassembles the broken pieces of our past tradition. Right? That's why it starts with a, a reference to the Satyricon, an ancient, ancient Roman text. And it has references to the Aeneid and then to Dante. And he said, I'm gathering all these pieces together. I'm going to reassemble it into a new frame. And then that new frame becomes part of the song that moves forward. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what we are. We are fragmented notes that have been broken up by war. Right? We've been broken up by the war and the reign of sin. We are broken up pieces that are then assembled here together by the Spirit into a new frame where we sing songs as a cosmic cacophony that makes Mozart sound like the Muppets, right? It makes Bach sound like toddlers banging on pots and pans. That's what the voice, your voices, our awful singing voices sound here to the Father. My awful singing voice. Some of you guys have nice voices. But our voices are gathered together and they form a cosmic cacophony because they are united with King David's. And they're united with the saints. And they're united with Evars. And they're lifted up and perfected by Jesus Christ as a beautiful, fragrant aroma and sound to the heavenly places. With that vision, with that true vision, with the reality presented before us in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, you should come here each week and be refreshed. What could be more refreshing than that? Come to this place and knock the roof off of this little church with your hymns. Because the roof has already been lifted by Jesus Christ. Heaven has invaded earth. And at this very moment, we having died to our biological families, having died to our carnal vision, we worship today with our father Abraham and our mother Sarah. We worship with Mary and Peter and Paul. We pray and feast and sing today with our brother Evars. And we sing with your parents and your grandparents that died in the Lord. Because when you come here, you do not come to church. But you come to Mount Zion. And you come to the city of the living God. And you come to the heavenly Jerusalem. And you come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And you come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And you come to God, the judge of all. And you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And you come to his sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All of those with eyes, let them see. 
Amen. Let us continue to worship God with the corporate. Oh, I always forget. Let's close in prayer because we don't pray in my service at this time. But let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how lovely and beautiful is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. We come before you now in prayer and wonder that the God of all glory has through the person of Jesus Christ that he has cracked the seal between heaven and earth. We thank you for the privilege of being lifted up here this morning, lifted up here into the heavenly places. Father, we thank you this morning for human sacrifice. We thank you that that at the very core, at the beating heart of our religion, stands the human sacrifice, the sacrifice that ends all human sacrifices, the sacrifice whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Father, we thank you that the immortal, invisible, God-only wise, that he became mortal, and that now in Christ, five bleeding wounds he bears, the wounds that he received on Calvary, And we praise you that those wounds pour forth effectual, efficacious, eternal prayers that strongly plead for each and every person in this room. Father, we thank you for the water and we thank you for the blood, which from Christ's torn and lacerated body flow out into all the world to heal a broken cosmos. We thank you for the floodwaters of baptism that drown the old man, that we might be born anew. Father, we thank you for the gift of your cup, by which we receive the medicine of immortality. And already, through the mouth of faith, we drink in the presence of the King. Father, we thank you for your church, for the preached word, for communal prayer together. We pray. thank you for the sacraments, all of which are means to help restore to us a sacramental vision, a sacramental imagination. Heal us the blind, Father God. Father, be with the weak, the sick, the hurting, the anxious, the depressed, the lonely in our congregation here this morning. Draw them, Father, to this place that weekly they might engage in the active refreshment of your kingdom. And for those that can't be with us here in body, for whatever reason that might be, we pray that you would stir up the feet of those here to run towards the afflicted, to sit with them, to pray with them. And we pray, Father God, that you would give each and every person here strong backs, that they might bear each other's burdens. Father, we pray that you would slay and kill the egotistical, jealous, self-centered corruptions of our own hearts, that we might able to be people that could actually truly rejoice with those who rejoice. Help us to realize that we are indeed one body, knitted together by the Spirit, that is the eternal love between the Father and the Son, and as such a unified body, Father God, we help us to realize that the victories of those here, of our brothers and sisters, are the, their victories are indeed our victories. Father, help us to die to the self that we might be born anew. Continue the good work that you have started in us and sustain us until the second coming when we will see with our eyes what we have already come to by faith. We pray these things in the name of the risen ascended, victorious King Jesus as the assembly of the firstborn who have been united to him by the Holy Spirit. Amen.